Well, um, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We're thankful that you are here to worship together with us. And uh, as we continue our time of worship, we turn to the scriptures. And uh, this is uh, Communion Sunday, uh, the first Sunday of every month. We, um, we, we intentionally set aside a time in our, in our normal worship service uh, to celebrate the Lord's table. And, uh, and that, would be, um, that would be today. And so if you uh, have... Uh, uh, confess your sins and uh, declare Jesus Christ uh, as your Savior and Lord. We invite you to participate in the Lord's table with us. But uh, before we get to the Lord's table, we return to the struggle of faith in the person of Job. And uh, we have a lot to cover today. We're going to be covering three chapters and uh, in less time than we normally have. It should be fine, right? It should be fine. <clears throat> um, so this morning, the title of our message is uh, Struggling to Trust What We Believe. I, I've just put trust what we believe, but it really is about the struggle of faith. And if there's nothing else that you gain from the reading and the study of the book of Job, let it be that you start to understand that the life of faith is often, um, is often troubled or, or perplexed by the difficulties of life, by tragedies, by pains. And as those things happen, I think the wonder of the book of Job is that it doesn't give you just kind of this weird cookie cutter, kind of simple, you know, just shade within the lines kind of explanation. In fact, that's part of Job's problem. He would like a clear explanation. Lord, why is this happening to me? And you know, throughout the entire book, and even as we get to the final chapters, when God shows up and, and addresses Job directly, as Job has been begging him to do, God doesn't give him a clear answer. In, in fact, the book of Job is not so much about the fact that God has a clear purpose for every difficulty in our lives. He does. We trust that He does. But He doesn't tell us what that is, not necessarily. He walks us through, and if there's nothing else you gain from this book, it should be the struggle of faith that Job encounters. Because the one thing that Job does right is that he takes it all to the Lord. He takes his lament. He takes his pain. He takes his questions. He takes his, his struggle with faith. He starts to wonder if God is on his side or not. Right? Like he takes his theology and he takes his struggle, he takes his tragic pains, he takes it all to the Lord and he lets the Lord have it. I mean, he really goes in and, and not in a way that is wicked necessarily, right? That is touched by, you know, that, that can be touched by almost a, 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 a righteous, prideful, Lord, you need to answer this kind of accusation. But nevertheless, he goes to the Lord. He doesn't go to his friends. He doesn't find a 1-800 number. What is God doing? Right? He, he doesn't seek other people's counsel. In fact, the counsel that he receives is terrible. The only thing he has is, I have the Lord. I have my trust in him. And even though my trust is crumbling, at least I could talk to him about it. That is a tremendously valuable thing for all of us who walk in faith. Because all of us will find a moment of struggle and pain. Or a season of struggle and pain. Even as Bryant was leading us in our congregational prayer, 
We have so many in our congregation that are struggling with various issues. And there are many of those were, were physical illness issues, but there are tremendously many more. Maybe you're struggling with relational issues, um, with, uh, uh, um, with family issues, with work issues, or, or other issues, things that you haven't spoken to anyone about. Well, that's fine, but you can speak to the Lord about them. That's what we mean by the struggle. The struggle to trust what we believe. The struggle to trust what we believe. Now think about that, right? We're all familiar with that, with that statement, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And, and every Christian understands exactly the heart of that statement. I mean, you think about it rationally, and you're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. You can't say, I believe. Now help me because I unbelieve, Right? Right. Why is that rational? And yet we understand exactly what that means. There is an element where there is something that we think we know, we believe, and we need the help of trusting what we know. Eliphaz and Job. We are entering into the second cycle of the back and forth between Job's friends and Job, and we're going to be moving a little bit faster. That's coming. We'll be covering three chapters. It's uh, it's because um, we kind of walk through more slowly the first round, and from here on, I think we could hear from each friend, and then we could hear Job and his response in, in just kind of one package. I think that will help us that way. But in the second cycle of dialogues, we see that everything begins to intensify. The accusations of his friends get stronger. The desires uh, uh, of Job to hear from God get stronger. The, the certainty of his friends that Job is a sinner and that he's been hiding out and he's getting what he actually deserves becomes stronger. And the accusation of Job's heart to say, God is against me, becomes stronger. Everything intensifies. And Eliphaz, on his part, right, Eliphaz and, and his friends, right, and Job's friends, all of them, they enter into a similar struggle. Eliphaz has knowledge. He doesn't have full knowledge, and it leads him to presumption. You think of like Proverbs eighteen seventeen: the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Or Proverbs eighteen thirteen: if one gives an answer before he hears, meaning he hears everything, it is his folly and shame. It's true that Eliphaz has some good things to say. His theology is fairly on point. But he lacks a knowledge of what Job is going through. And that lack of knowledge, that presumption, that prideful presumption on his part leads him to express no kind of compassion. And he's the nice one, right? It gets worse with the other brothers here. Job, on his part, he similarly has some modicum of truth. He does. His theology is excellent. Um, his theology is spot on. But even knowing what he knows, he's struggling with trusting what he knows. He has truth. He's struggling to trust in that truth. You think about Hebrews 1, uh, 11, right? Verse 1 defines faith this way. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. The conviction of things that are not seen. And it goes on to talk about all of these heroes who demonstrated such a faith. A faith in something that is hoped for, but is unseen. 
but it's the conviction that that's what faith is. And then later in that same chapter, it says this. And think about how this might apply to Job. And without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's the truth. That's the theological uh, facts about who and what God is. But here's the second part. And that he rewards those who seek him. That God actually cares. Job's struggle is not in believing that God is and that God can do whatever he does. None of them, Job, his friends, none of them, in any way think that this is not, this is not God's hand in Job's life. They all recognize God's providence. This is an act of God's sovereign rule, and what, what is happening to Job is from the hand of God. They all recognize that. Where Job struggles is knowing that this is God and that God still loves me, that he still cares about me because he doesn't understand how all this can be taking place. Now, that was a long introduction, but we wanted to reset ourselves as we enter into the second cycle of arguments, and we'll be moving quickly. I'm going to encourage you to lean heavily on our outline because that will help shape um, the, the, the structure of what we have to say, and it will let us move a lot faster. But let's pray and ask that the Lord would open the scriptures to us. Our Heavenly Father, even as we come to your word this morning, we think about um, that struggle of faith. And perhaps there are some in this room who are struggling with things, maybe hidden, maybe quiet, but that are difficult for them. Whether it's this desire to be married and struggling with singleness, or it's this desire to have kids and struggling with barrenness, or, or a desire or need to get a job and, and the hopelessness of finding something that is helpful, of feeling like our lives are just kind of trapped or that, that we can't seem to get outside of, of these four walls that corner us in, whatever our struggles may be, they be re- relational, whether they be circumstantial, help us to recognize that our theology is no good if we affirm something generally without believing in our God thoroughly. Help us to sympathize with Job, to understand his struggle, and to realize that the path forward is always to lean in on you. Even in our rough, our, our struggling, our difficulty of finding words that we might lean in on our God because he is our God and he cares for us. And as New Covenant, New Testament believers, remind us again that regardless of anything else that might happen, we have the absolute evidence of your undying and eternal love for us. You sent your son to die in our place so that we might be your child unto eternity. So we pray for this grace to fall upon all those that are hearing the scriptures this morning and that you would bless us to know you more and to trust you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there's two major sections, simply, and one is Eliphaz. And with Eliphaz, in each of them, they have some amount of truth, and there's something that they're lacking. Eliphaz offers accusation without full knowledge. I mean, that's the best way we might put it in chapter 15. 
Then Job, not so much a response to Eliphaz. There's a few verses that is a direct response to Eliphaz. And the rest is just kind of him pleading out to heaven and to the Lord. And what Job lacks is trust. He, he has truth and, and he's struggling to have trust in chapters 16 and 17. So let's take a look at Eliphaz and his second accusation that comes against Job. And let me say this. Eliphaz's first speech, just as a reminder, the, some key points, was in chapters 4 and 5. And in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he said this. Remember, who, who that was innocent ever perished. You hear what he's saying? No one that's innocent is ever punished like this. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow inequity and sow trouble reap the same. People get what they deserve is kind of his theology, right? And then in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. So his encouragement to Job in the first round was to believe that nothing happens by chance. That's true. And that you get what you deserve. That's not always exactly true. Not in the moment. And he says, so if God is reproving or disciplining you, then turn to him. Repent of whatever hidden sins you have. That was his first round. And so now here's his second round, right? Eliphaz, um, he's going uh, to demonstrate uh, an assumption of guilt on Job's part and to speak to the consequence of sin um, in Job's life. So assumption of guilt. Um, here, in, uh, um, here in chapter 15, right? Um, Job, his assumption of guilt is based on a few things. First, it's based on the fact that Job has spoken wrong words. Verses 1 through 6. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? See, he's saying, Job, you're, you're just speaking like a windbag. You're just hot air. No substance. He goes on, verse 3. Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? Your words are empty, unprofitable. Bildad in 8.2, Zophar in 11.2, they say the same thing. You're talking nonsense, Job, and all your words are meaningless. They're empty. They don't help you and they don't help anybody else. Verse 4, but you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. See, not only are the words windy and empty, they are now damaging. You're causing the fear of God to be pushed aside, and you're holding back meditation or devotion or right thinking and right desires for the things of the Lord. Your words erode a fear of God and a devotion and commitment to Him. Because if blessing is not the immediate blessing of virtue, and punishment is not the immediate consequence of sin, then what is there, Job? Why would anybody live virtuously if they could live virtuously and then be punished? See, see, you see how his argument is tight and his system is closed. He is convinced that what you are saying, Job, that you are innocent and yet suffering, that can't happen in my world. Because if that can happen, then why would anybody remain innocent? Like, you know, 
We can all be punished. Bad things can happen to everyone, even good people. So what's the point of being exceedingly good? Verse 5. For your inequity teaches your mouth. You see, this is the problem. You're speaking, right, in ways that demonstrate inequity. And then the second part of verse 5, and you choose the tongue of the crafty, and you're being pretty crafty, right? This is crafty like the serpent in Genesis 3 is crafty. You are speaking words that sound right, that sound good, and people are good at that, right? Your, your own mouth, verse 6, condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. It is all your own mouth that speaks your cleverness, your craftiness, your corruption, that's your problem, your wrong words. He assumed Job's guilt. So Eliphaz, his speech is void of all compassion. As often happens to us in the midst of arguments, when we do lack sympathy and compassion, he's about the words that you use, parsing out your language. Wait, wait, you said this, right? You know, it's that kind of argument. That kind of, that kind of, you know, a rhetorical. Let's let's approach this logical, logically. Let's examine every word that we have said. Let's get to the heart of this kind of judgmentalism that exudes out of Eliphaz. And again, he is the more kind one, the the more gentle one out of the three friends. It's a reminder to us as counselors that we need not go immediately to our own judgment. I think what, that's what Jesus means in Matthew 7 when he says, Judge not, that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you'll be judged, and with the measure you use it'll be measured against you. And then he goes on to give us that great illustration. Why do you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye and not notice the log that's in your own? Take care of your own. Then you could be a help to others. And that's the point. But Eliphaz, his first speech, begins with an assumption of guilt, and it revolves around Job's wrong words, Job's wicked pride in chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 7 to 13. We'll go a little bit faster here. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you, were you brought forth before the hills? Have you, listened in, have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why does your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? He is accusing Job of sheer brazen arrogance. You're talking like you're the only wise person in the, in the room. You know, there, there is gray hairs and the aged among us. He's saying you should trust the wisdom of of your seniors. And you know, in general, that's not a bad idea because people that are older have a little bit more experience, right? But it's a fallacy to think that just, become, just because you're older that you might become wiser. I mention that to you guys constantly and we should always remember that. We do not grow in godliness, in virtue, in humility or graciousness just because we get older. If you guys are young some of our students in here, you might think, okay, well, you know, I will be a godly man, I'll be a godly woman someday in the future, and it just kind of naturally happen. You're mistaken. The, the natural kind of flow, the ebb and flow of your life 
If you go with whatever just kind of comes to you, if you're just kind of going with what, 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 you know, day after day, living as you normally live, you will not grow in godliness. You will not grow in humility. You will not grow in grace. These are, these are antithetical to your flesh and to your pride. You, you might get better at religious ideas, right? This is Eliphaz. You might get better at understanding kind of general principles of truth, but you don't become more gracious. He's dealing with a friend, and, and they call each other friends, right? He's dealing with a friend who has literally lost everything in his life in a moment of, 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 of a day, actually. And his compassion is leached away, and here he is accusing this man, saying, man, are you the only wise person among us? There's some older people here who got some wisdom for you. Listen to your seniors. Your heart carries you away. Your eyes are flashing with pride, right? You turn your spirit against God, and the wickedness that is coming out of your mouth because of the wickedness that is the pride of your heart. This is all feeding Eliphaz's assumption of Job's guilt. Third, verses 14 through 16, Job's hidden sin. Look at verse 14. What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? That's a good statement of the general truth of the sinfulness of every human being. We are born in our iniquity and sin, David says, right? We, we are conceived, and in the womb, right, when the egg is fertilized when, and a human soul is created, that human soul inherits a nature from our father's father's father, you know, through Abraham, through everyone, back to Adam. We inherit us in nature. So that that little baby, it's a short time before he or she learns to say no. Right? I've never taught any of my kids to say no when they're babies. But somehow, magically, every single one of them learned how to say no, right? Or to disobey. And every parent in this group knows that. You have none of you trained your children to rebellion. And yet it just seeds naturally out of their souls and hearts. Why? Because we are born in our iniquity and sin. We are sinners by nature. This is a true and absolutely theologically correct statement, verse 14. Mankind is cursed with an unrighteous spirit. Verse 15, Behold, God puts no trust in His holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. He's saying in comparison, God versus even His holy ones, His heavenly angels, even they are not pure in His sight. That's accurate, right? Nothing is holy. No one is holy like God is holy. Verse 16, How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice, like water. You see, where, where is this going? The implication of verse 16 is that Eliphaz is implying that this is you, Job. Right? There's normal sinners that are born every day. There's the holy angels that seem holy to us, but they are not holy in comparison to God in heaven. How much less is the sinner that is abominable, that is a horror to see, that is corrupt, that is rotting on the inside, a man who drinks injustice like water, a man like you, hiding in your sin, because in his mind, this kind of bad stuff doesn't happen to regular people. This happens to particularly wicked people. Right? There's an assumption of guilt on his part because Job has spoken wrong words, he's displayed wicked pride, and he's got some secret deep hidden sin, and he drinks iniquity 
like water. The second thing that, that, that is part of Eliphaz's accusation without knowledge is that there is a consequence to sin. This part, most of what Eliphaz says is absolutely true, right? There's a consequence to sin. He begins in uh, verses 17 to 19 that there is a weight tradition. He begins with tradition. He says, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. He is saying that, that, you know, that there is a tradition that has been passed on that wise men have been, ho- have been told and they've been, they've been passing it along generation to generation and no stranger has passed among them, meaning that it is untainted, pristine, unadulterated tradition, right? Yeah, that, that kind of tradition, in, on the one hand, sounds like, okay, that could be a good thing, right? But on the other hand, this seems to be kind of the natural impulse of all of us that are religionists, that are practitioners of religion, or that are legalists. We lean in on tradition. You know what they used to do back in those days? You know, I think Christians of the past used to, right? And I'm not saying that's wrong. The problem is, if that's your standard of righteousness, you're missing the mark. If we go back to the Victorian era and we dress more modestly, does that make us more godly? Not necessarily, because the problems are issues of the heart and the soul, not merely what is on the outside. And in that Victorian era, there was plenty of sin to go around. They're not that different from us. They just at least externally spoke in a way that sounded semi-Christian. They dressed in a way that looked semi-Christian. And we've been mistaken to think that the traditions of the old would help us to find sanctification and holiness today. They might help us culturally, but they are not necessarily a means to an end of spiritual renewal or righteousness. He's going to lean in on tradition, and he's saying this tradition is untainted. This is what all the old guys have always said, the weight of tradition. And then he talks about the pain of wickedness. Now, this part is absolutely true. He, he, look at verses 20 through 27, and as I read it, right, I, I would try to emphasize part of it um, so that we are catching its emphases. Verse 20, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. In his prosperity, right, the destroyer will come upon him. He does, verse 22, he does not believe that he will return out of the darkness and he is marked for the sword. Verse 23, he wanders abroad for bread saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Verse 24, distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Verse 25, because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield because he has covered his face with fat and gathered fat upon his waist. He is saying that there is pain for the wicked right? He will writhe in pain. Um, He will hear dreadful sounds. He is marked for the sword. He's wandering for bread. He is terrified. He, He defies the Almighty, and he's running stubbornly against God because he is fat. Now, fat in the Old Testament 
was a good thing. It meant that you were prosperous and you ate a lot. And he's saying this guy has enjoyed his prosperity, but in his wickedness now he is shuddering in absolute terror. The point I think that he's making is, does any of this sound familiar to you, Job? A life of pain, of hearing dreadful sounds, right? Of, of, of feeling this terror and distress that, that you are battling against it. Does that sound like you? That's exactly the language that Job had been using of himself in his relationship with the Lord, questioning why he is feeling these things. So Eliphaz is helping Job and saying, this applies to you, in the pain of the wicked, and in the fate of the unrighteous. The fate of the unrighteous. <clears throat> 28 through 35. Listen again as we, as we read what will happen to such unrighteous individuals and see if this does not sound like Job himself. Verse 28, and he has lived in desolate cities. It probably should be translated in the future that he will live in desolate cities in houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruin. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for the emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be great. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his bosom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. If you didn't catch all the innuendos, again, this may be a true statement that the fate of the unrighteous is typically judgment, right? He, live, he will live in abandoned places that are becoming a heap of ruin. He was once rich, but his wealth won't endure. Job, right? He, he thought that he had so much that he was paid in full, that his branches was green, but it wasn't. And so all of the grapes have fallen off the vine, and they are cut off from him, and he is among the company of the barren. Job, God's fire consumes the tents of bribery. Job, what have you been sowing, Job? Your sin has found you out. Have you ever felt like you just know better than somebody? Especially somebody that you are more theologically inclined to believe that you, you, you have a better idea of God and everything. Have you ever thought that their attitude, their speech, their appearance was enough to prove that they're just guilty? They're just in the wrong, right? Have you ever talked to a brother and sister and talked down to them like they just don't know? Like if they knew better, they could do better? Then welcome to the company of Job's friends. Welcome to the circle of Eliphaz. This isn't so different from how we often act, and that's the frightening part of it. We walk out in judgment easily. We condemn others easily. We don't, we don't step back and consider their mortal frame because we don't really consider our mortal frame. He should know better. He is aged, and at least the way he puts it, he seems to be much older than Job. 
And he ought to have a little bit more compassion for the difficulty of the life that Job is currently experiencing. Psalm 1 tells us about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And a lot of the friend's theology is based on that, right? This is what happens to the righteous man. He flourishes in everything that he does. He prospers in everything that he does. This is what happens to the wicked man. He's not going to stand amongst the righteous. God, God's going to shift him like wheat, right? He'll be gone. And he'll, he'll make sure that that punishment comes. Now, that's true. That's not theologically inaccurate. That's excellent. But there's always also Psalm 73. If you remember Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph, where, where Asaph, and like a lot of other psalms, where the psalmist would declare, Lord, I don't get it. The unrighteous are prospering. They're fat-cheeked. They're having a good life. There's no sorrows or pains. And even when they die, they die in a kind of blissful sleep. And here am I, the righteous, and I'm suffering all the day long. I don't get it. Both of them psalms. Both of them true. And the value of Psalm 73 is it's not until he goes to the house of the Lord that he beheld their end. And then he recognized eternity and what God does in his righteousness. See, this is where Job has got it right. He goes to the Lord. This is where Eliphaz and friends have it wrong. They just go at Job. And this is Job as he turns to the Lord. We've got to move quickly here. Eliphaz, accusation without knowledge about Job. It's truth. He has truth, but he's struggling with trust, right? And this is kind of give you the overview of where we're going. Uh, my comforters don't comfort. My God opposes me. My spirit is broken, and my hope is fading. And we're going to do all of that in like five minutes. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes, right? Job, because uh, I'm going on sabbatical, so we can't take a break. We, we, just, we, we just have to power it through. All right, let's begin here. Job, he has truth and he's struggling with trust. My comforters don't comfort me. This is, this is the simplest one, right? Um, he talks about his miserable comforters in 1 through 3. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? I guess that's kind of the way that you make fun of each other, right? In your arguments, it sounds like hot air, right? Your windy words, don't they have an end? Or what provokes you uh, that you answer? I, I also could speak to you. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. There's something interesting that happens because in, in verses 1 through 3, right, um, he is telling them that your words are windy, you're provoking, right? You're speaking words that are not helpful. But in the second part, in verses 4 to 5, Job is saying there's a ministry of comfort that he himself would wish that he could do. He says, I could also speak to you. In other words, if our situation were reversed, I could speak into your life. If you were in my place, he says. And he says, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Shake my head is that Psalm 22, wag their heads. You know, they make fun of me. They wag their heads. It is, uh, as one uh, scholar says, it's a gesture of spiteful pleasure. It's when you look at something and you go, you know, with that smirk on your face, like, it's what you get. It's what you get. So what I would do to the kids sometimes when they're jumping around, the boys when they're little, they're jumping around. They're like, hey, stop jumping all over the couch and everything. Stop jumping around. Boom! And they fall down on their head. And I look at them and go, 
that's what you get, right? Like, that's exactly, and he's saying, I could do that, but would Job do that? Verse 5, but I could instead strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. The comfort that comes from my words might take away some of your friends. His friends are bad counselors, miserable counselors. That's an oxymoron, by the way, right? You're supposed to be a comforter, but you're bringing misery. You're a miserable counselor. It's army intelligence, right? It's an oxymoron. These, these words don't fit together, but we get what they're saying. All right, my comforters don't comfort me. My God opposes me. This is the important part. This is where Job is, starts to express that God has turned against him. God has torn me, he says, in verses 6 through 9. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. If I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. He, God has done something. That verb is used five times in this short portion of Scripture. These are all the things that God has done. He has shriveled me. He has shrunk me. He has torn me. He has abandoned me. He breaks me. All of these things God has done to me. And yes, this is Job's complaint. This is how Job sees it at this point. He believes that God is against him. He is accurate in the sense that this is all from God. God is absolutely providential. He's in control of all things, so this is from God's hand. That's correct. But he ascribes to God a motive of hostility. He's tearing me up because he hates me, right? That, that's, his, that's his struggle of faith. And then he says in the second part, verses 10 and 11, God has relinquished me. Look at verse 10 and 11, and this is an interesting passage. Men have gaped at me with their mouths. Like, they're like, oh, that's crazy looking, that dude, right? They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. Does that echo as something that we know of in the New Testament? It sounds exactly like Jesus, right? How they strike him. How they gape at him. How they mass together with him against him in verse 11 god gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked all of it foreshadowing the sufferings of christ and the humiliation that he suffers by the hands that are unrighteous right in matthew 27 they strip him put a scarlet robe on him twist together a crown of thorns put it on his head a reed in his right hand kneel before him and mock him and say hail king of the jews they spit on him they take the reed and strike him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, put on his own clothes, and led him away to crucify him. God is letting me go into the hands of the wicked. That's what I mean by relinquish me. And Job is saying, that's what I feel. That's what's happening. God has broken me, verses 12 to 14. I was at ease. This is true. And he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and he dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I like uh, this one uh, commentator, his paraphrase 
um, especially verse 14. I was at ease, but he smashed and smashed me, seized my neck and bashed and bashed me. He is saying it's like God has come against him like an enemy, set him up as a target, tore him open, spilled out his guts, breaks him apart, and keeps coming at him over and over like, like, like soldiers uh, attacking the breach in the wall. The point is that it is not, right? The key is not people. It's not his friends. It's not anyone. The point is the pain that he's suffering is from God. Job's theology leads him to acknowledge the truth that God is ultimately responsible, but he'll go a step further and he'll characterize God as being cruel and antagonistic towards him. We can do that. We can, on the one hand, affirm the theological truth that God is sovereign, and on the other hand, we could question God's love for us. This is exactly where Job is struggling. Wait, did I miss one? God has broken me. All right, God has broken me. And then, see, God, my spirit is now broken. My spirit is broken. Verses 15 through 17, I have, I have viewed, or I, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. I've laid my strength into dust. My face is red with weeping. My eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is violence, no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. He's declaring his innocence, right? Look at verse 17. I haven't done violence with my hands, and my prayer is pure. And yet, my skin, I have sewed sackcloth to cover up the wounds of my skin. That's nasty, right? My face is red with weeping. Eyelids are deep and dark. Psalm 24 says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is, this is Job saying, I have clean hands and a pure heart. This doesn't make sense. This is what he's struggling for. He's reaching then, He's reaching for a heavenly hope. So see, theologically, Job is well informed enough that his instinct takes him to this glimmer of hope constantly. He's saying, I don't understand. If my hands are clean and my heart is pure, can I not ascend? Can I not come to the hill of the Lord? And in verse 18, he says, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Like Abel, right? In Genesis um, 4.10, let the voice of of Abel's blood cry out from the ground. Let my blood cry out from the ground. Verse 19, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. If I have a witness, it is God. He's in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. If someone's going to defend me, it'd be God. So he's dealing with this dualistic kind of weird thing. God is my enemy, but God is my only witness and can only testify of my clean hands and my pure heart. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, verse 20. Verse 21, that he would, he would argue the case of a man with God as a, as a son of man does with his neighbor. He's saying that there's got to be a heavenly witness advocate that will stand up for me because only God knows that I'm clean of hands and pure in heart. Right? But the problem is God is also the one that is sending all these arrows against me. And so now he is losing earthly vision. It's, it's like it's all closing in on him. Verse 22, For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. I'm going to die. Chapter 17, verse 1, My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are markers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. 
So see, we've seen my comforters don't comfort, my God opposes me, my spirit is broken, finally my hope is fading. My hope is fading, and so is my time. <laughs> so we'll, we'll walk very quickly through it. He pleads for security, verses 3 to 5. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to God. The same God that he's accusing on the one hand of attacking him, the same God that could be his only primary witness that he is right, And he's saying, lay down a pledge for me. Who is there who will put up a security for me? He's asking for a pledge and security, a guarantee, to make sure that he's going to be okay. Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, talking about his friends, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. The verse 5 is just an old proverb probably, where he's saying that you can't just turn on your friends like that. You can't sell them out like that. God is not going to be pleased with that. Lord, would you guarantee something for me? So he clings to his innocence in verses 6 to 9. He has made me a byword of the peoples. I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation. All my members are like shadow. The upright are appalled at this. The upright, he could be being sarcastic, but I think he's being legit. He's saying the upright looks at Job and says, man, this is appalling. And the innocent stirs himself up against the godlessness, against guys that would come up against someone like Job, that would speak self-righteously against them, and they're stirred up to say, dude, like, have some compassion. What is wrong with you? Verse 9, yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Man, this glimmer of hope, right? Dash with hopelessness, this short wave of hope. It's like waves coming in and going out. And there's these small sparks that suggest that he is hanging on to his innocence and he might get stronger in righteousness and then he's sinking. But you come on again, all of you, talking to his friends, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. I hope for Sheol as my house. If I hope for Sheol as my house. Sheol is the place of the grave. If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? It's just a sinking hope. He is losing hope. And this is the paradox of faith. It is, the, it is to be in the mire, in the quicksand of despair, while knowing theologically that God is for me. Well, what does Job need more than anything else? He needs hope and he needs patience. He has theology. His theology is, his theological instinct is correct. He needs an advocate. He needs a hope that's beyond the grave. He needs something that cannot be removed. He needs heaven to stand up for him. All of that is correct. And the only reason he can touch, the only way that he could touch that is if we lean in on God. And as New Testament believers, we understand that more perfectly. We can lean in on Christ. Let me, let me read you one last passage, and this will be kind of our closing. All right? I, I don't know if you could read that. I can't read that from here. All right? But it's Hebrews 10, 19-23. Now listen. This is written to the Hebrews who are struggling and are under great duress and persecution. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it is because of Christ's blood 
that we are redeemed and we are God's people. That's what he's saying. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we don't just have a sacrificial lamb. We have a priest interceding and caring for us over his household, and we are his household. Then this is what the, the author of Hebrews says. Let us draw near with the true heart. Sound like Job? In full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sound like Job? And our bodies washed with pure water. Clean hands. A pure heart. Right? A, a clear conscience. That All of that. He's saying draw near then to the Lord. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And the only thing the author of Hebrews offers those Hebrew Christians who have lost their homes and scattered abroad and they're wandering around and they're being persecuted, the only hope that he offers them is God is faithful and will eventually show himself 